the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Welcome again, folks, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We're glad you're with us. Here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. Well, we've got a wonderful engineer. He just goes by Gabe. Uh, he gets us on the air effectively. Uh, Andrew Herdliska does the producing for us. He puts the shows together. And in this first segment, I'm so pleased Dr. Brian Simmons is with us. Uh, he's, he's involved in putting out this magnificent new a Bible. Well, it's not new. No Bible is new, it, but it's packaged and it's just unbelievable. Uh, the Passion Translation, <clears throat> New Testament Masterpiece Edition. Uh, Brian, welcome to Orlando. I hope things are well with you. Doing great, Pat. Thank you very much. So, what does that mean, the Passion Translation, New Testament? Well, it's a new dynamic translation that's meant to really grip this generation with the passion of God's heart. He wants to capture us and possess us, own us, and flow through us, live His life in us. So we're trying to put, um, we're attempting to bring a dynamic equivalent translation uh, before the readers uh, in language that will grip the heart, not just uh, fascinate the mind, but will really uh, grow inside the heart of each reader. Uh, I would call it a study Bible. Is that accurate? Yeah, we have thousands of footnotes that uh, range from alternate translations to the meaning of Greek and and uh, Aramaic words. We have um, cross references and just a backstory that I think will help the reader connect. Brian, what do you think is going on? With, with the, the study Bibles that are coming out over the last few years, we got the Warren Wearsby study Bible and the Tony Evans study Bible and the Charles Swindoll study Bible and the Life Application study Bible and uh, <laughs> Al Mohler study Bible. I mean, I'm fascinated with this. What, what's going on out there? Well, I think the Lord is really wanting us to dig deep into the Scriptures. And this generation, this uh, millennial generation is fascinated with the revelation of the truth of God, and they want to go deeper and not just a surface skim. So I think we're seeing, you know, numerous dozens of study Bibles emerge that are going to give us a a greater depth of understanding. You know, I, I don't think God wants us simply to read the Bible. He wants us to know His heart, and to know His heart at times means we dig deeper into the scriptures and we we find those golden nuggets that are laying just below the surface how do we find them how do you do that 
Well, for me, uh, it's been uh, 50 years of Greek and Hebrew word studies of going uh, as deep as I can into uh, uh, words themselves, like the Hebrew word chesed, which uh, the NIV translates loving kindness, which is, that's good. But chesed is almost untranslatable. It really requires a number of words to bring out its full meaning. It's covenant love. It's loyal love. It's unconditional, endless love that, you know, I love you anyway, no matter what you do. That's, it's almost like God has to love us. That's the chesed of his heart. So to study those, those words out in greater depth, that's, that's been a joy for me, and I try to include those uh, discoveries in the footnotes. Ryan, what was your background, uh, uh, training-wise, education, uh, that, yeah. that took you to this point? What, what, what's the story? Well, our, our, our basic training was missionary work. We went through Bible college, uh, boot camp, jungle camp, and then I took a, a year of language and linguistic training that really prepared us, in a human sense, prepared us for working with indigenous people groups. Uh, tribal people that had no written language. So it was there that we cut our teeth on language analysis and uh, helping to develop an alphabet and eventually teach them to read their own language and then helping, assisting in the Payakuna translation project uh, to put the Word of God into their dialect. So that's been uh, the background. We pastored 18 years in Connecticut. Uh, now, for the last 13 years, I've been working every day on um, this new translation project. Mm. Has it has it been received? Overwhelmingly positive. We have thousands and thousands of reviews on Amazon, and the readers mentioned reconnecting. Some people have given up Bible reading because they couldn't understand it. Others just really falling in love with the narrative, understanding the scriptures for the first time. Uh, diving into into a uh, in-depth study, so it's been encouraging. Um, you know, we we realize Bible translations are very personal to people. People tend to have favorites, uh, and that's great. And we're not trying to outdo any other translation, but simply bring our humble attempt to the table. And if I could add, uh, the best translation is the Bible that we read and believe and live out. So if you like the one you have, stay with it, and make sure we follow it. Uh, Brian, uh, the Bible can be confusing to people. Have you found a method uh, for for the average Christian uh, where they can really get value from their Bible study and really uh, find a blessing with it? What 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 do you tell people? Yeah, I think start simple. Uh, start reading the Bible, not just to say I can read. I read through the Bible in one year. But rather, take the Psalms. Uh, everyone connects with music and with the uh, lyrics of the book of Psalms, and let it touch your heart and, and ponder them, pray them, take the Scriptures back to God in prayer. I call it prayer reading the Bible. And uh, then, you know, the Gospels, of course, bring us the life of Jesus and, and uh, pondering them, stopping uh, after just a few verses and think about what we just read. And then ask the Lord, make it real in my life. So that's what what I would say. Um, Brian, uh, your thoughts on the Proverbs, please. Oh, 
I love the book of Proverbs, and we all need wisdom, don't we? The Hebrew word for proverb is a secret. It's the word mashal, and uh, mashal means proverb, a short, pithy saying, but it also means uh, to rule, to take dominion, to take the throne, to exercise your authority. So book of Proverbs, when it's released inside of us, when its wisdom is given to us, we can reign in life. We can enjoy our lives and walk in wisdom that uh, we don't have to be ashamed of. One of my favorite Proverbs is uh, 21.1. And here's what you have to say in, uh, in, in this Passion Translation. It's as easy for God to steer a king's heart for his purposes as it is for him to direct the course of a stream. And then at the bottom, we go down to our little note, uh, Proverbs 21.1. Because a leader's decisions affect so many people, God will intervene and steer them as a farmer steers the course of a stream to irrigate his fields. That's solid, isn't it? Yeah, it's powerful. God uh, speaks to his leaders. He steers their hearts. And in this verse, it's a king. But, uh, you know, we are kings and priests in the kingdom of God. So we can apply that verse very personally. Uh, Brian, Brian Simmons is our guest. Brian, if you could sit down with Solomon today over lunch, uh, what would you want to talk about? I'd want to talk about implementing the wisdom of God and how he took the revelation God gave him and how he implemented it. And we have lots of hints in the scripture of that, of how he ordered his, even the Queen of Sheba was by how he ordered his household and set the table setting. Uh, Just everything about Solomon was excellence. And uh, I'd like to kind of get the backstory of how he walked it out in a practical sense. I I look forward one day to meeting Solomon, and I think we'll be uh, we'll be quite surprised at what he can tell us. Uh, I I would also want to ask him about all of his wives and what was that like. Uh, yeah, he sure goofed I, up on I that. I got one, didn't I he? got my I got my hands full with one wife. <laughs> let, let alone what hundreds or thousands. I mean, how in the world? Oh yeah, he had a number of wives and concubines, and and that's why. For me, I, I'm changing the subject slightly, Pat, but the Song of Songs, written by Solomon, I just can't believe that it was one of his adulterous affairs that he legitim- God legitimized and put in the middle of our Bible. I, I'm convinced the Song of Songs, written by Solomon, has the embedded story of Christ uh, romancing his bride. And when we look at it that way, it opens up to a beautiful story of, of how he wins our heart and makes us more like him. I think it's safe to say, uh, Brian, aside from Jesus, all of these personalities that we meet in the Bible, uh, they all had flaws. Uh, they, they all were scarred in many ways. You agree? Well, we're all, you know, wounded image bearers. We carry the image of God, but it is, uh, sadly, it, a blurry vision at times because of our immaturity. But what, what overreaches all of that is the chesed, the mercy of God that triumphs over judgment, that he will use wounded, broken people 
because that's all he has to work with. It's amazing, isn't it, that he would uh, count on us and depend on us yeah. in many ways to, to carry on his work. He's uh, actually chosen the weak things of the world to confound the wise. So our weakness never disqualifies us. Uh, Brian, let me uh, move to one of my favorite books in the whole Bible, and it's the book of James. And 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 and, and after it, you know, you're, we're here with the book. Open it up, James, and then in parentheses uh, is the word Jacob. <laughs> what what does that mean? Well, it means uh, every translation that calls it James is not from the original Greek. Hebrew or Aramaic. Uh, in Greek, it is Jacob. In Hebrew, it's Jacob. In Aramaic, it's Jacob. Sadly, um, a king by the name of James had a Bible that he, um, you know, he wanted to be done, and I think they honored him by giving him a name in in the Bible, King James. But uh, it's really the name Jacob, and. Any of our listeners could verify that with just a simple word search. I'll tell you what, Brian. Now, that's the first time I've ever uh, come across that. And and, and James was uh, just kind of a, a throwaway to the king to make him feel good? Well, that's one theory. That's one theory because uh, the text itself is Jacob, and he was Jewish. He was the brother of our Lord Jesus. And, you know, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and not James, but Jacob. He's not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and James. Mm. Brian, uh, throughout uh, the uh, opening part of James, uh, the opening uh, throughout the Psalms, uh, the word wisdom just keeps coming up over and over and over and over again. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? The uh, Hebrew word chokma and the Greek word sophia. Uh, wisdom is feminine. It's called Lady Wisdom in Proverbs 8, and I believe we have to court her, that we have to have a relationship. Wisdom is not an it. It is a person that we have a relationship with. Now, 1 Corinthians one thirty says Christ is our wisdom. So the wisdom of God is the mind of Christ. It's the Lord Jesus himself. And to get wisdom, we draw near to him, listen to his voice, respond to what he says, and let it change our life. Like, I call wisdom a, a, a divine chiropractor. It adjusts us. It pops things into place where it belongs. And if we'll let him really push where he wants to push, we'll find wisdom entering into our soul. My guest is Dr. Brian Simmons. Uh, he is the author of the Passion Translation New Testament Masterpiece Edition. It's a must for your uh, for your study habits, folks. You need to make sure you get a copy of this book, the Passion Translation. It's beautifully bound and just lovely, absolutely lovely. Uh, we've got more with Brian. Stay with us here. I do want to remind you before the break that we're trying to bring Major League Baseball to Orlando, and you can help. Uh, there's a website, OrlandoDreamers.com. OrlandoDreamers.com. Go up there and just check in. Just uh, let us hear from you. Uh, you like the idea? Season tickets, perhaps. If this all works out, uh, plug in. OrlandoDreamers.com. We've got another segment with Dr. Brian Simmons. Stay with us here 
on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. You're listening to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Uh, Dr. Brian Simmons is our guest. Brian, I liked that question when I said, uh, if you could have lunch with Solomon. Uh, Now, uh, I want you to have lunch with um, the Apostle John. How do you think that would go? Wow, great question. I think it would be wonderful. I I think, uh, you know, personally, I identify with John. Uh, He was a lover. Uh, It it was said that he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. It doesn't mean that he loved him more than any other. It just means John understood that he was loved. And I, I think I would talk to him about, John, what are the secrets you learned about the love of Christ? And uh, I'd also like to talk to him about the book of Revelation. I think he, that's a masterpiece. He, uh, you know, he mystifies every one of us as we read it. Uh, but John, as a mystical lover of God, and I use the word mystical in the sense of he, he was a supernatural uh, seer and uh, apostle. But I'd like to pick his brains about some of the symbolism in the book of Revelation. I think he would have a lot that may be a long lunch, and I'd even pick up the tab. <laughs> Tell me about lunch with the Apostle Paul. What do you think that would be like? Oh, that would be dramatic, wouldn't it? Um, you know, I'm I'm in awe of him, uh, being a student of the Greek language and translating, having translated the Book of Romans. After about seven verses, I pushed back uh, my chair in the office and I said, "Lord, you got to help me. This this is a." This is a masterpiece. Paul is a genius, and uh, the Greek text is just fascinating. It's intricate. Uh, he used sentence length that is unbelievable. Uh, building, uh, I liken the Greek text to bricks and blocks. You build your thought one block at a time, and uh, Paul was an amazing uh, genius. I'd like to ask him about what he learned in the third heavens. I'd like to ask him uh, how he endured the persecution with such grace and dignity. Um, those would be a couple of questions off the top of my head. and I'd buy his lunch, too. I'd even throw in some dessert. <laughs> Brian, do you think we're going to get to meet all those people in heaven? Oh, I'm sure we will. I, You know, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and there's so much to him that we have not yet even the half has not even been told us. John even says that everything Jesus did and taught wasn't written down because it would fill the whole world if if it were to be written down. So I think heaven itself is going to be, um, well, not a boring Bible study group, but I think it's going to be a fascinating time of endless mystery and learning and discovery. And yes, meeting uh, some of my favorites, which would be David and John the Baptist, and um, the woman at the well, so many mighty women in the Bible that uh, pure of heart and character sterling. I'd love to meet Deborah, the prophetess. Um, Hey, we may even meet Adam and Eve. 
you think Adam and Eve will be there? Well, Jesus, uh, God clothed them with uh, lambskin. Yes. I think the forgiveness of God is greater than the sin of man. And uh, we'll be shocked of people that will be there and maybe some that aren't there. Um, here's one for you. Uh, and maybe I, maybe I could join you for lunch on this one. Uh, <laughs> maybe you'd need me there, uh, Brian. Uh, we're going to have a, a late lunch with, uh, with Peter. Your thoughts? Yeah. Well, Peter is such an intriguing man that emerges from the scriptures, passionate, fiery, a leader. Nobody would mistake his strong leadership traits. And uh, yet uh, we know that he denied the Lord three times and, and ended up just a broken man. Jesus appeared to him, you know, on the Sea of Galilee, on the shore, cooking fish that Peter didn't catch, and wanted that man to be restored. And I'd ask him, what's that journey? What was the journey like of your heart being healed by the Lord Jesus there on that um, eating breakfast there on the shore of Galilee? What was, what was going through your mind when, when uh, Jesus told you to feed his, his lambs? Uh, we'd have a great discussion. Um, I think he'd, he'd tell us that Jesus is the head of the church, not him. But, um, yeah, there'd be a lot to learn, wouldn't there? Yeah, that would be absolutely fascinating. Uh, tell me this, Brian. Uh, I think Jesus was the greatest leader uh, the world has ever seen. Uh, what do you think Jesus' strongest leadership skill was? I think he spoke into people's destiny, not their history. Uh, uh, Jesus doesn't, uh, you know, rebuke people for not praying. He just said, when you pray, pray like this. I think we would spend a day with the real Jesus unveiled before us. It would change us forever. His love was endless, is endless. Uh, his mercy is uh, just as high as the sky itself. I think he would speak into our hearts and not just teach us truth as much as he would embed himself into us, his thoughts, his heart. Um, you know, he wants a friendship with us. He wants to walk with us. And, you know, to be with Jesus is my daily passion, my longing every morning as I get up, as I work on the translation, I want it to carry his heart to his people. And I look forward to the day when I can stand before him and say, Lord, I did what you asked of me and you helped me all the way. Brian, you mentioned this a minute ago, and this this does really, um, I think it kind of bothers me. Um, Jesus did countless things that I haven't included here. And if every one of his works were written down and described one by one, I suppose that the world itself wouldn't have enough room to contain the books that would have to be written. Oh, and and, and I'm, I, I almost say, John, wait a minute. Uh, Jesus did countless things that you haven't included here. Why didn't he include them? Um, did you run out of paper, papyrus? Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think, uh, Pat, I think that speaks to the inspiration of Scripture, that, that the fact that we only have, if you think about it, we really only have about three and a half months 
of the life of Jesus recorded in the Scripture. We have a little bit of his birth, one, one small episode at 12, and the bulk of the Gospels have to do with his last week on earth. So if you shrink down the uh, content of what we know and have about the works and miracles of Jesus, it's only a small fraction of his 33 and a half years on earth. So the fact that we have what we have testifies to me that God has superintended the, uh, the writing of Scripture, and uh, he's breathed life into the, the truth that he's embedded there, and everything we need for life and godliness we have in the Bible as is, and will never be anything added to what we already have. But uh, I think that's one thing we'll have in heaven, don't you, Pat, that we'll have, uh, maybe we'll see the YouTube accounts of miracles he did that weren't even mentioned in the Gospels. Big screen, uh, big screen, yeah. you know, um, and, and you can punch it up, you know, you can, uh, do, yeah. and, and then all these unknown things uh, that we, we don't know about, uh, they'll probably be in another room where you can uh, where you can see him. You know the amazing thing, uh, Brian, 30 years old, he just is such a young man, such a young man, but yet wisdom and maturity, leadership skills. Of course, he was God, but uh, still, he was so young. Yeah. It says in Luke uh, that he grew in wisdom. Yes. Which is fascinating that the Son of God, grew in wisdom and favor before others. But what an example. He is God and will never diminish that, but we should never diminish his humanity either. He's the 200% human. He's God and man mingled as one. And uh, we err if we diminish his deity and if we diminish his humanity. Uh, You mentioned uh, Luke 2.52. We're running out of time. We know uh, virtually nothing about the 18 years between chapter 2 and 3 when Jesus went to the Jordan to be baptized by the prophet John. We knew he grew in favor with God and men. He served his earthly father in a carpenter's shop. It's likely that Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, died during this season of his life. This left Jesus with the responsibility as firstborn to provide for his family. Amazing mysteries surround this one who is too marvelous for words folks our guest has been brian simmons uh we'll be back right after these messages on the pat williams saturday power hour it's the new am 990 and fm 101.5 the word in orlando more of the pat williams hour in just a moment am 990 and fm 101.5 the word you're listening to the pat williams power hour am 990 and fm 101.5 the word now, here's Pat. Uh, folks, um, uh, Brian Simmons was our guest in that first segment. Uh, Mitch Album is with us. I'm always so pleased when Mitch writes another book uh, because we get to hook up, and uh, he's always fascinating company. Uh, welcome to Orlando, Mitch. How are you? Pat, always good to hear your voice. Well, here we go. A novel called The Stranger in the Lifeboat. Uh, what, what's the story? What's the story? Well, uh, I'll give you the 30-second movie uh, trailer pitch. So there's this luxury yacht has some of the richest people in the world are gathering for this big soiree, and uh, inexplicably it explodes out in the middle of the ocean, and everybody's killed except 10 people, five of whom are the rich guests and five of whom are the staff that was serving them, and they make their way to a life raft, 
and they're out in the ocean for three days, and nobody's coming for them. They're running out of food. There's sharks in the water. They're, they're crying out for help in their own ways. And suddenly, on the third day, they see this body floating in the water, and they, they pull it into the raft, and it's this young guy, nondescript, very average-looking. He's alive. Mm. And they start peppering him with questions, and he doesn't answer. And finally, one of the passengers says, well, thank the Lord we found you. And he says, I am the Lord. Mm. And uh, it takes off from there. Mitch, I'm I'm fascinated with the mind uh, of a novelist, particularly when he's a sports writer. <laughs> uh, are novelists born or made? Well, honestly, Pat, I don't think there's such a distinction. Uh, I'm a storyteller, and I've always been a storyteller. And uh, when I worked predominantly in sports, I told my stories in sports. Before that, I was a musician, and I told my stories through music. Uh, when I started writing nonfiction books, I like Tuesdays with Maury, you know, I told my story through a, a long form of a book. And when I started writing novels, uh, I told my stories in imaginary fiction. I've written movies, I've written plays, I've even written a musical. It's, it's all different forms of storytelling, but it, it all comes from the same source. How about this statement, Mitch? Uh, we are hardwired to retain stories, not PowerPoints. Thank goodness. What do you think of that statement? It's true. Storytelling is the earliest form of communication, and it is the way that we pass down our family histories. The, the carvings on the cavemen's walls were stories. And uh, we, are, we are forever tied to the idea of a beginning, a middle, and an end and uh, what happens to the people involved. And that's why no matter what form our communication takes, whether it's you know, writing on cave walls, smoke signals, spoken word, written word, digital word, you know, images, Instagrams, whatever, it, the story will never die. The story is, is always going to be how humans communicate to one another. Mitch, um, in this particular case, or any one of these books that you've written, uh, do you wake up in the middle of the night with a eureka moment? <laughs> or how does, um, how does it work? Not so much, Pat. Uh, I, I tend to, my eureka moments tend to be, uh, I, I, I decide on the concept of what I want the book to be about. And that's kind of different than a way a lot of other writers might come up with a plot. You know, they might say, oh, I, you know, I want to tell a story about a guy who blows up a shopping mall and and then goes on the run, and people can't find them, and all that. And they sort of see the movie going in their head. Well, for me, I have a, the idea that I want to explore. And once I decide what the idea that I want to explore is, then I see if I can match the story to it. So in the case of The Stranger in the Lifeboat, I wanted to write about help. I wanted to write about how we ask for help and how we expect help to come. You know, when we pray, for example, you know, we, we, we ask God, make this happen. And we kind of expect it to happen, like, the next day. And when it doesn't happen the next day or the next week or the next month, we kind of figure our prayers aren't being answered. But the truth is that God, at least in my opinion, and the universe, they, they work on their own schedule. And many times something bad will happen, and you'll think it's terrible and your prayers are not being answered because it, it, it was allowed to happen. And then five or ten years down the road, you look back and you say, well, you know, at the time it was was awful, but if that hadn't happened, then this wouldn't happen, and I wouldn't have gone here, and I wouldn't have met this person, and my life would have been different. So I guess looking back, 
it was kind of the best thing that could have happened to me. You know, we say that all the time. Well, if it's the best thing that could have happened to you 10 years from now, then it is the best thing that could happen to you right now. It's just that we don't trust that. You know, we want help on our own schedule. And so I wanted to explore that idea, and it was then that I said, okay, help. So we want to talk about help, unexpected help. Let me create a situation where people are in the most trouble I could possibly think of. And that was when the idea of, like, let me put them out in a life raft in the middle of the ocean with no food and no water and sharks and, a, and then have this person who claims to be God come in their boat only to have them say, nah, you're not. You're not who you say you are. And, they, they, you know, they have help right there. And, and they say, well, are you here to save us? He says, well, I can only save you if everyone in this boat believes I am who I say I am at the same time. And that's all they have to do, and they can't do it because, you know, they have their own egos and they have their own approach to things. And so uh, that's kind of how we are, too, in our lives. You know, help may be coming in a form that we don't recognize and an opportunity that we don't want to take, uh, and we're just stubbornly clinging to, no, no, I'm going to, you know, wait until this happens, wait until this happens. And we don't recognize that God may be working in, in very strange ways unbeknownst to us. Mitch Album is with us, a best-selling author. His book is out. It's called The Stranger in the Lifeboat. Mitch, I'm fascinated by your maturing faith that seems to keep growing stronger. What, what, what do you think? Well, it's, it's absolutely true. Uh, I think when I was younger, um, mostly my 20s and 30s, my, while I had been you know, raised with faith, I didn't, I didn't use it. I didn't rely on it. I didn't. I didn't ask God for anything, and didn't and didn't thank God for anything. I I just went about my business and was very successful, young, and in the sports writing business, and then broadcasting business. And I just wanted more, more, more. And you know, my goal was just to keep getting bigger and bigger. And then when I was 37, uh, I had an encounter with my old college professor named Maury Schwartz, uh, who was dying from Lou Gehrig's disease, and I began to go see him every Tuesday. Uh, one after the other after the other. It ultimately turned into the book Tuesdays with Maury, but that was a book that was written to pay his medical bills. It wasn't a book that was written mm. as a career move. Uh, and what happened during those Tuesdays, Pat, is that I began to see at age 37, which is young but not young, young anymore, that everything that I had been chasing and everything that I had made important was not important to Maury. And didn't give him any comfort. The amount of money that he had earned, the amount of acclaim he had earned, was useless to him. Uh, all that mattered to him in those dying days was the people that he loved, that they were around him, that he could you know, hold their hands and talk to them and, and realize the people that he had touched. You know, his, his wealth came in how many students came back to him and how many you know, thanked him for changing their lives. And I realized that I was on a path that was not going to be very satisfactory whenever my Maury moment came, and I suddenly had to look at my own mortality the way that he did. And so I began to change my direction. I, I changed it in how I lived my life. I changed it in what I wrote about. Mm. I never wrote another sports book again. You know, all my books from that point forward were about, like Tuesdays with Maury, about things that are important in life and, and really matter in life. I began to get more and more involved in charitable work, which now dominates my life. Uh, Twelve years ago, I I took over an orphanage in Haiti, and I'm there now every month of my life. I have been for 12 years, and, and I'll be for the rest of my life. And mm. I would say that that's half of my existence right now is the, the four kids. And you know something about having a lot of kids. 
Uh, well, we've got 54 kids that we raise there in Port-au-Prince in our little orphanage, and uh, their concerns are my concerns. Their lives are my life. And, and uh, you know, to me, that is kind of the tenet of faith. When you start putting other people uh, ahead of yourself, and it comes naturally, not that you force it, but that it not only comes naturally, but you look forward to it. Um, that's how I know, or at least feel like I'm on the right path. My guest is Mitch Album. I'm so glad he's with us. Um, he's always fascinating to talk to and fascinating to read. Make sure you get his latest book, uh, The Stranger in the Lifeboat, a, a novel. Uh, speaking of books, uh, my latest book is out, just came out. It's called Every Day is Game Day. Uh, it's a 365-day devotional book. Uh, all every every devotion is is built around a sports theme. Uh, I think you'll enjoy it. Alan Houston of the in the of the Knicks office wrote the foreword for us. Yeah, so I, I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, every oh, well, day is game I, day. I used to cover Alan when he was shooting baskets for the Detroit Pistons. Yes, you did. Yes, you, <laughs> you did. Know, we go way back. We've yeah, got, it sounds wonderful, Pat. We got more with Mitch Album right after this. It's the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. On the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word. Now, here's Pat. Mitch Album is our guest. He's in Detroit. Uh, we've talked about his book, The Stranger in the Lifeboat. Now, Mitch, uh, we get to dive into other topics. And, oh, boy, this is always fun. Let's, let's start with the departure, Mitch, of the president of the University of Michigan. How did that play up your way? Well, it's still playing. Uh, it was very sudden. And he was not particularly popular in a lot of corners, uh, a lot of Tough things have happened at the University of Michigan under his watch. I I don't know him personally, but I understand many perceive him as being arrogant or aloof. He put into play these very, very, very strict rules about uh, relationships that people can have in the university with one another, uh, particularly subordinate, you know, relationships, and then ends up being fired for sending inappropriate emails to a female subordinate albeit they weren't, you know, genital pictures or anything like that, and quite, quite the opposite. They were kind of like love notes, mm. uh, and it's become somewhat embarrassing because these notes have all come out, and they're, they're like released every one of them, which I don't know that they needed to do. And, you, you know, you see a man who's clearly he's a married man uh, with kids, but he's clearly lonely, and he's, he's seeking, you know, just a... You know, I don't even know if there was any sex involved, uh, you know, but somebody termed these uh, inappropriate... And he's gone and fired in a, uh, you know, in, in, in the university, in a, in a state with which we had the Dr. Larry Nasser situation at Michigan State, you yes, know, with that, yes. that horrible, horrible uh, man who abused hundreds and hundreds of, of student-athletes over the years. And then a similar case at the University of Michigan with a doctor named Dr. Robert Anderson, who did the same for the athletes. These are two big state schools are reeling from accusations and lawsuits and mismanagement and, and hiding things. And now here comes this incident. And, 
And so he's ousted, and uh, you know the person who used to be the president is is back in for, as an interim basis. So it's a mess. Mitch, um, let, let's cover these topics: the state of the Pistons and rookie Cade Cunningham. Well, Cade Cunningham shows promise, uh, a lot of promise. But as as is the case with a lot of number one draft picks, you tend to go to very bad teams. And the Pistons have been a bad team for a long time. So it's really hard to tell how good he can be, you know, when they're still on a team that's lucky to win 10 or 12 games. And, and so uh, I always worry that when you get these young kids and they're a number one pick and they're full of talent, and then they get on these bad rosters, you start to weigh them down. Uh, and I often think that kids who get drafted – 17th or 18th in the draft or 21st or 22nd often have a better road uh, because they tend to go to better teams. They're playing with better players. They're getting better habits. Uh, they're learning better habits. You know, Pat, you know, as well as anybody, what the NBA life is like. It's very hard to improve your game. Uh, you know, the practice schedule and the shoot-around schedule, is, 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 it's so rat-a-tat-tat. Uh, you know, you get to the city, you, you, you have a shoot-around in the morning, the game's at night, you're on a plane. Now you go, you go home, you got a two-hour practice, you know, uh, but you're practicing for a specific team, and then you, you go home. And it's, it's not like you spend all day working on your game. And so if you're not surrounded by good teachers, good coaches, good fellow players who, who, who can improve you, sometimes you don't reach the potential that, you, that, that made you the number one pick in the first place. And, you know, that's what I worry about with guys like Cade Cunningham, I mean, even – even Zion Williamson and players like that, you know, you, you just wonder, uh, is, is going to the worst team always the best thing? And that's the situation he's in right now. Mitch, I want to play this game with you. There's so many interesting people that have crossed your life. I'm going to pop names at you, and you give me a thought. your thoughts. You ready? Well, I, only if they cross my life. Sure. <laughs> Watson Wadi Spolstra. No, don't know that person. Uh, Joe Falls. Joe Falls was the kind of preeminent columnist in Detroit when I arrived in 1985. And uh, we were sort of pitted against one another because he worked for the Detroit News and I worked for the Detroit Free Press. And I was this young mid-20s kid. And he was, I imagine at the time, probably close to 60. And, you know, a, a longtime sports writer in the Detroit area. And, you know, there was this sort of like, well, here's the new generation and here's the old generation. And I never was comfortable with that because I liked Joe and Joe liked me. Uh, but, you know, it was like we were supposed to be enemies. And people were kind of uh, uh, surprised to find out that we got along and that I had a lot of respect for Joe. And, and Joe was, you know, came out of the old baseball writing world where, you know, when guys used to cover the teams every single day and, you know, he had an enormous encyclopedic knowledge of, of baseball. Um, and eventually we found our equilibrium and people stopped trying to gin up a rivalry between us. And uh, we remained friends and, and respected colleagues uh, until, his, until his death many years later. Ernie Harwell. Ernie was a gem. Uh, Ernie... <laughs> The first assignment I had when I came to Detroit in 1985 was a Tigers game. And I, I was on the field. Nobody knew who I was. You know, I was this new columnist in town. And I get a tap on the shoulder, and I turn around, and it's Ernie Harwell. And Ernie says, 
Hi, my name is Ernie Howell, you know, and uh, I'm the announcer for the Tigers. You know, <laughs> and Ernie, you're not supposed to introduce yourself to me. I'm supposed to be the one introducing myself to you. And that's how he was like, uh, you know, I loved him and wrote so many things about him. And I ultimately wrote a play. I don't know if you're aware of this, uh, called Ernie. Really? That uh, ran here for eight years and uh, was just a love letter to him. And um, oh. we had these two actors over the course of the eight years who played him who just did him dead on. And people would come to these, oh. uh, and, and, and the Tigers in baseball let us use all the footage and all the calls that he made over the many, many years that he was with the Brooklyn Dodgers and, you know, and, and New York and, and the Giants and then the Tigers. And it was uh, a hugely successful show, and people would cry at the end. I mean, just weep mm. about how much they loved this guy. So he was he's one of my all-time icons. Chuck Daly. Chuck was, uh, Chuck was a guy who called himself the second banana all the time uh, and, uh, you know, was always self-effacing, self-effacing, uh, even though, of course, he won several championships with the Pistons. Um, two fast Chuck Daly stories. One, Mark Aguirre came and played with the Pistons, and uh, there was a game where he was so out of it, he was missing the ball, he was missing the calls, and Chuck was fuming on the sidelines, fuming, and I was sitting right at the table, and finally, you know, I don't know, Aguirre misses a ball, a ball goes over his head or something like that, and he's trotting back the other direction towards Chuck, and Chuck grabs the phone in front of me, picks up the receiver, and screams out, Mark, Mark! The CBA's on the phone. <laughs> I don't know what made him do that in the middle of a game, but, you know, that's, that's how he was. And then uh, the other story is uh, we went on the road for a playoff thing down in Atlanta, and we were down in Buckhead, and, and uh, I called him up. I was going to do a column with him. He said, well, I, you know, I, uh, you can come with me. I said, where are we going? He said, we're going to the mall. And we went to the shopping mall, and Chuck Daly just blitzed through the shopping mall all clothing stores, found this, that, this, that, never bought a thing. He found their <laughs> coats, the shirts, but never bought a thing. But he memorized and remembered. And when he, and when, well, finally we got back to the town, I said, you got enough money, why don't you buy some? He says, oh, no, 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 no. I, I get the names of the stuff, I get the brand, I get it, and then I call my guy, and I get it for a good price. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Chuck, always, Chuck. Chuck always had a guy, you know. He had a guy. He had a guy for everything. In the hair business, get your hair done or clothing or shirts yep. or shoes or whatever. Yep. Bo yep. Schembechler. Well, Bo, I wrote a book with, uh, you know, the, the his autobiography. And, uh, you know, he was, he was uh, a throwback. And he certainly, you know, adhered to the old way of doing things. And, you know, he's come under some criticism posthumously for uh, this Dr. Anderson story and what he did or didn't know about it. Uh, but I can tell you that Bo was, Bo had a heart of gold, and Bo uh, was as principled a person as I ever met. He also was the worst person on earth to ever write an autobiography with because he couldn't remember anything about his own life. And I had to, I had to interview 100 people for his autobiography just to try to get his story right. Tom Brady, quarterback at Michigan. Well, I'd love to tell you that, you know, we were in on Tom Brady early here, but we weren't. I covered the games that Tom Brady played in, and he was nothing special. He, he, had, he had a couple of good games towards the end of, his, uh, uh, end of his run here because he was behind this guy, Drew Henson, who was supposed to be the big, the yeah. big everything. And he, he only really played, you know, one and a half years as a starting quarterback. He had a really good bowl game, and he had a really good game uh, – 
like the next to the last of the regular season, nobody saw Tom Brady becoming an NFL star. I don't think a lot of people thought Tom Brady was going to make it in the NFL at all mm. and witness the fact that he was a six-round draft pick. He was always confident, um, but he wasn't. He grew. You know, you talked about me and my faith and my life and changing. He, he, Tom Brady became something different. Uh, and the only thing that was the same from Michigan to who he is now is his belief in himself. But his game and his talent and everything grew exponentially once he became a professional. Uh, Mitch, to be playing what he's playing in his mid-40s. Yeah, un- I mean, unheard we, of. We've never seen anything like this in any nope. sport, have and we? I doubt we will. I doubt we will again. Al Kaline. Well, Al was, Al was the... You know, he was the conscience of the Tigers. He was uh, uh, so self-effacing. I think there's a story once where, where they, they basically wanted to give him uh, a raise after uh, a year, and he said, no, nah, I, I didn't have a good enough season. And he turned turned down, uh, I don't know, whatever it was, $5,000 a year raise or something, because he just didn't feel that he was, uh, you know, he had had a good enough year. He was that way all the way till the end. He was gentle. Uh, you, you would never know who he was, if he was in the room, he would just sit there in a windbreaker, you know, just kind of join in. But, but you'd see the, the, the fans around him would swoon. Uh, uh, but he, was, he never played up to that. He was, he was as kind and as unassuming uh, in his legend as he had been when he was a ball player. And he was an icon here in Detroit. And, uh, and his passing was, a, was a, a big deal. It was like losing the Pope. You know, it was... It was, it was Terrible uh, and, and, and news making, you know, in every corner of the state. Ty Cobb. Oh no, I, that was wrong. That was that was. Uh, that was yeah, I didn't know Ty Cobb. <laughs> that was that was for Grantland Rice. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. I, I, Grantland was just on. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, give, uh, t- tell me about Jim Harbaugh. Well, I, I you know I'm I'm the only one left in Detroit who covered Jim Harbaugh when he was a player, and he was Jimmy Harbaugh back then, and. Uh, he always had a strange way of communicating. He, you would talk to him, and his eyes would get all kind of glassy and far away looking, and he'd get this weird smile on his face, and he'd he'd answer questions in kind of a weird way, and mm. sometimes he would just go, "Go, I'm so jacked!" Like like he was just like had all this energy, and then he came back here as a coach, and he's been the same way. Like, and people can't get a straight answer out of him. Even right now, is he going to stay or is he going to go? How does he feel about, you know, losing to Ohio State all those years? He, he, he doesn't respond. He's like kind of in his own world. But I think he's an excellent coach, and I think the players like playing for him. Uh, and I, I, I would hate to see him leave now. There's talk that he's considering the pros, which surprises me, because I think he's finally turned the corner on, on some of the challenges. But if he does leave, it's because he's smart. And he has realized that, you know, without the transfer portal, uh, without the NIL money, you know, Michigan isn't going all big in on all those things. It's going to be very hard to compete at a national championship level with the Texas schools and Ohio States and Alabamas and, and schools that are willing to pay, you know, a lot of money for their kids to go there and all. It's a whole different game. And maybe he's sensing that he doesn't want to be a part of it. Mitch, in closing... Uh, when people finish your new book, The Stranger in the Lifeboat, mm-hmm. uh, what do you want? What do you think their reaction will be? What do you, uh, are there action points? Well, there are many. You know, I want people to uh, believe that there's hope. 
uh, and and to think about how they perceive certain things. You know, the, the the joy of writing that book was that I got to put the questions that uh, we all would have if we got five minutes or three days or whatever in a boat with God. I got to put them in the mouths of the passengers. And so, you know, they get to ask questions like, uh, well, do you really answer prayers? And God says, well, I answer every prayer, but sometimes the answer is no. Mm. You know, or they ask, you know, why do people have to die? Of course, that, that huge question. Why did you, you know, one of the pastors, why did you take my wife? Why did she have to die? And the God character says, well, you know, why is it that when humans die on earth, you're always asking, why did God take them? Maybe a better question would be, why did God give them to you in the first place? Mm. What did you do to deserve their love and their attention and their sweetness and the memories that you made? And he goes on to say, you know, I know that you cry when your loved ones leave this earth, but I can assure you they're not crying where they are. Mitch Album has been our guest. Thanks for joining us here uh, for uh, this time with Mitch. Uh, we've got a one-minute wrap-up right after these messages, folks, on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Now, here's Pat. Well, thanks for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We had... Dr. Brian Simmons in that first segment talking about his uh, new translation, the Passion Translation of the New Testament. And then Mitch Albin, the best-selling author, came in to talk about his new book, The Stranger in the Lifeboat. And and then we veered off to some other topics. He knew I was going to do that, uh, sports and all things uh, Detroit and Michigan. So that was great fun. Um I do want to remind you, we're trying to bring Major League Baseball to Orlando, and we need your help. Uh, go up to the website, orlandodreamers.com, orlandodreamers.com. Check it out. Let us hear from you. A good idea, you think? Uh, season tickets, perhaps? If this whole thing comes about, we're working on it. Uh, so, orlandodreamers.com. We'll see you next weekend here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Stay tuned, folks, to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Have a great week ahead. God bless. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this time, where faith comes by hearing. The new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.